0: I want you to think of if someone came to you and said they wanted to write a biography about yourself. That can be a scary thing. I was thinking about this the past week or so as I was preparing and thinking, what if someone came to me and said, I want to do a biography about Marty Ottaway. There would likely be some things in there that I am very proud of. There would likely be some things in there that I may be not so proud of. But I want you to think of and this is going to be difficult, I want you to think of one incident in your life that sums up your childhood. Now that may have something very much to do with family. That may have something to do with the Chicago Blackhawks. And all these things may be very good for us, right? And we've just come through Christmas, so maybe that's good memories of Christmas. Now some of us grew up with great childhoods and we wouldn't change a thing. Some of us sitting here, no doubt, grew up with childhoods that we would probably change a few things, if not many things, right? So some of these events are going to be good events. Some of these events that maybe you're thinking of are going to be not so good events. But as we're thinking of of one specific incident that sort of describes maybe who you were as a child, or if you're a child right now, maybe this was last week and you've got a memory that I know I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life, right? We have those things, probably especially around Christmas, around the holidays. But if someone's writing a, a biography about yourself, they're likely looking for events in your life that can sum up sort of who you are in sort of a quick snippet of something that happened and as we said, they may be good characteristics. Maybe a biographer would come to you and say, you know, I, I know that you cut the lawn of a neighbor that you had down the street every week for your childhood or in high school. Or maybe you shoveled their driveway. And those those would show great characteristics of us, right? Those are the stories that we want people to know about us, the nice, kind things that we do for people. But there's likely some events that we have in our life that are burned memories in our minds of Man, they show our sin, don't they? They show a tragic aspect of of who we are. Of course, I look back on my life, and I uh, I had a great childhood. I'm very thankful for the parents that the Lord uh, provided for me. Um, but an event that sticks out, and, and we have things that we do, and you just, you just wish you didn't do them, right? Because they're burned in your memory forever. And I know there'll be no tears in heaven or at least no sorrowful t- sorrowful tears, but man, it's hard to think of not remembering some of these, these things that we've done. I'll give an example. I remember as a, and I, I don't know if I've shared this, I may have shared this with the youth group as well at times before, but um, probably as an eight-year-old boy, uh, I was not a fan of baths, showers, um, anything probably that you would assume a young boy would not be a fan of, right? And we've, Hopefully, at this point, I've grown out of that, out of that phase. Um, but anyways, I had a specific shirt that I loved to wear. I played baseball growing up, and I played for Beaver Lumber. Um, that was the team that sponsored us. And it was a yellow jersey. Jersey was just a T-shirt, really. Um, but I loved that T-shirt. And uh, number nine on the back, and probably had sponsored by Tim Hortons, too, or something. I don't know. Anyways, I wore that shirt all the time all the time, every day. It didn't matter. I just, that was the shirt I grabbed, and my mom knew it, and uh, thinking that I was going to outsmart my mom, I was going to school one day, and I had my yellow shirt under a sweater that I was wearing to shirt, to school, sorry, and so a sweater comes down, so she could see the yellow underneath, and, and she said, Marty, is that, is that your Beaver Lumber shirt? Probably that you've worn for the last three weeks straight or something, I don't know, and without skipping a beat, and this will show you my my sin nature. I said no. Didn't even think about it. Just boom. Nope. This is g- good idea, Marty. This is going to get you out of this situation by, by lying to your mom. And of course, my mom knew, so she made me turn around and go to my room and, and change my shirt. But if we're looking for something in our biography, that's something that sticks out for me. Sticks out for me of a not, um, something that was not good for me or doesn't make me look good, but simply shows my sinfulness as a person, right? and our sin nature, where we sin without even thinking about it. So as we're thinking about things that we do in our biography, where we're going to look, we're actually not going to look at the passage that Jake read this morning. We're going to look at the passage after, because this is what we have, really, of the childhood of Christ, when Christ was 12 years old. If you're not there, turn to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to simply continue on, because we've come out of the Christmas season, and in the Christmas season, we look at uh, typically Matthew and Luke uh, for our historical narratives of the birth of Christ. We look at the Gospel of Matthew and we look what happened immediately after Christ's birth. Mary and Joseph are told to flee to Egypt and they do that as recorded in Matthew, all because of course Herod uh, wanted to eliminate the Messiah, wanted to eliminate Christ. Eventually Matthew tells us that they end up in the city of Nazareth. Uh, then we're not, we're not going to look at Matthew this morning, but Matthew in chapter 3 Right after that, he turns to start talking about John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Christ, prepared the way for the Messiah. And then after that, Matthew, of course, talks about the baptism of Christ, uh, and then the beginning of Christ's adult ministry, which he would have been around 30 years old uh, when that time happened. That's where Matthew jumps in. Mark, Mark doesn't focus on the birth of Christ really at all, at least historically, he does not do that. Mark starts with John the Baptist, preparing the way for Christ, and then Mark as well jumps into the baptism of Christ and his ministry. We'll look at Luke this morning, but John, in the Gospel of John, you probably recognize where where John talks about the word becoming flesh, of course, right at the start of John chapter 1. But John also, he doesn't really give any historical um, narrative of the birth of Christ, or even shortly thereafter. So that leaves Luke, and Luke, of course, is a favorite around the Christmas time of year. Um, And Luke gives us, of course, the birth of Christ. He gives us the angels announcing Christ's birth to the shepherds. Then he gives us Christ presented at the temple, as Jake read this morning. And then we've got this quick story, this quick event in the life of Christ when he's 12 years old of something that occurs at the temple. And then after that, of course, Luke and the other gospels, we've got Chapters and chapters of three years of Christ's life here on earth. And of course those are very three very important years. Uh, they are the beginning of his ministry, his eventual death, his resurrection, into the book of Acts being his ascension. But the first 30 years after Christ is presented in the temple uh, to to the time of John the Baptist, or the time when Christ is baptized, his adult ministry begins that we see, they largely go undocumented in Scripture for us, and I find that interesting. I don't know if I really know why I find that interesting, but it's just interesting that you've got this huge chunk of your life um, that largely goes undocumented. If someone was writing a biography about myself, I'm likely going to include quite a few stories, events in my life leading up to when I was 30 or, or whatever the case may be. So Luke, Luke records uh, the only event of the childhood of Christ that we have in Scripture. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And as was read, Jake, Jake read this morning that Luke records Christ is presented at the temple in Jerusalem as was the custom for Jewish baby boys according to the law of Moses. And then look at verse 39. Jake read this already, but we'll read it again. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord they returned into Galilee to their, own, to their own town of Nazareth. And then verse 40, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And when you think about it, from the dedication of Christ to his baptism, the beginning of his ministry, this is the information that we have up until he's 12 years old, right? We have, we have from when he's uh, a baby To the 12-year-old Mark, this is our summary. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So Christ grew. He grew as other children do, physically in stature. Some of your Bibles might speak of his stature. He grew in understanding as other children do. But yet we're told that he was filled with wisdom. And hop down to verse 52 because this is is after the event we're going to look at this morning. Uh, chapter 2, verse 52 And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So we have uh, around this story of when Jesus is 12, which we're going to read here in a second, we've got these bookends of Luke telling us that Christ increased in wisdom, he increased in stature. So we're told that he's filled with wisdom. And Luke emphasizes this, emphasizes this fact for a very important reason. He emphasizes that Christ grew, became strong in order to show his humanity, to show his humanity. Christ has just come, or sorry, Luke has just come uh, through telling the, the birth story of Christ, speaking of his deity, who he is, that he is fully God. And now he wants his readers, he wants us and the initial readers as well to understand that Christ is fully uh, man as well. He wants us to know that because for Christ to be our Savior, he must be. For Christ to be our Savior, he must be fully God and he must be fully man uh, all at the same time. So Luke wants us to know that. But he, he he mentions Christ's wisdom. I don't know about you, but I did a lot of foolish things as a child. So I think I think Luke is telling us children do foolish things. We do. <laughs> we still do foolish things, don't we? Children do foolish things, but here's Christ and Christ is, uh, on the contrary, he is filled with, with wisdom. Everything that Christ did was done wisely, was done beyond his physical years. So as we come to the event, we, we just need to know that every year Joseph and Mary and their family went to Jerusalem. They went there for Passover. Remember, Passover is looking back at the events of Moses with Pharaoh in Egypt, and uh, eventually you you had all the um, the turmoil going on when, Moses, when God was telling Pharaoh to let his people go, and, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and and all, all that in, um, back, back in that time which they celebrate Passover for. And we won't get into all that this morning. But that's what they're celebrating. And Mary and Joseph would have gone to that every year. But this is the only time that Luke decides to tell us that they went. He tells us they went all the time, but then he actually gives specific examples about the time they went when, when Christ was 12. Now, women weren't actually required to go by custom. But it's likely Luke is giving props or giving a nod to Mary and Joseph and showing their spiritual commitment as a family that yes, although Mary did not need to go, she went uh, along with the family. And Joseph's family was also only required to go for the first two days. We'll read here in a second in verse 43, I believe it is, uh, that Luke tells us that they didn't leave Jerusalem until the feast was ended, so they were there the whole time. So we see the the spiritual devotion of the family of Mary and Joseph that they had. Look in verse 41. Verse 41, Now his parents, that's Christ's parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. This is likely or possibly one of the worst nightmares that every parent has, right? Or Maybe you as parents can think about a time you tried to lose your child and they, they seemingly just keep coming back. I don't know, I'm not there yet. Um, I just know I'd be in a lot of trouble uh, from my wife if, if I did not know where Thomas was, right? So we have, we have a nightmare going on and we can often, we can look... And we can look at Mary and Joseph and say, how on earth could you, how, how could you allow that to happen? You lost your child, right? This is, this is something that if a parent continues to lose their child, that the government will eventually remove the child, right? If a parent can't keep hold of their child. Now, this is the only, the only time that we know of this happening, but we can get frustrated with Mary and Joseph, right? Verse 44 tells us that they had supposed Jesus was in the group somewhere among the relatives, among the acquaintances. Some of your Bibles will say uh, that they assumed or they thought that Jesus was among the caravan, is the way that they put it, which isn't out of the question to travel. uh, The way that they traveled would be in a caravan. You and I, when we go on holidays, when we're going somewhere, we hop in the van, we hop in the car, and there's probably four, five, six, maybe seven, eight kids that could, eight people that can fit in a vehicle, right, at the most. So it's generally easy to keep track of how many people we have. Hopefully you didn't go to Grandma's uh, last week for Christmas and you forgot one of the kids at Grandma's house. Now, knowing a child, they may have wanted to stay at Grandma's house depending on what, grandma, what treats Grandma has at the house, but um, we, we generally can keep track of the amount of children that we, that we have. However, when they traveled, uh, this trip from Nazareth to, the, to Jerusalem was about 130 kilometers on foot, on animal, uh, whatever the case may be. And that trip would have taken about three or four days for them to complete. So a caravan of people serves a few purposes. It serves for protection along the road, to protect from thieves, from something, from anything else that may arise uh, as they are making that three or four day journey. It also allowed for fellowship along the way. There would have been well, possibly hundreds of people traveling from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the time of Passover. Now some of us when we go on vacation, we go on holidays, the, the the trip is just non-existent. We don't, the trip is nothing. It's let's get in the car at 4 o'clock and let's drive 24 straight hours to wherever we're going. Let's get there. Some of us, however, though, the journey is all part of the holidays, right? You've got two weeks holidays and you're going to be on the road for eight of those days. So we're seeing what we can see along the way. Uh, so we have fellowship as well as being An important part of that trip. Uh, They both make sense. They would have been traveling with many people as we set up uh, possibly into the hundreds amount of people. So that doesn't mean that there's just hundreds of adults. That means there's hundreds of what else? Kids. There'd be kids everywhere as they're traveling along. There'd be kids running up to the front. There'd be kids running to the back, seeing their mom and dad, and then going and playing with their friends as as they are moving along. It would have been chaos traveling in this type of caravan. So, all that to say it it's not certainly not out of the ordinary that Mary and Joseph would have left one of their children, remember Christ is twelve, so it's also likely that Mary and Joseph had other kids at this point as well who were traveling with them. Some think it may have been as simple as Mary thought that Jesus was with Joseph and Joseph thought that Jesus was with Mary. Um, we're not sure how it happened, but as you can imagine as well, when they're traveling down you've got uh, you're traveling with Upwards of a hundred people or more, and then you get to Jerusalem, and there's hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem who are there for Passover, who are there for the feast for the week after. It would have been mayhem, it would have been a zoo uh, getting into Jerusalem and then, then coming out as well. But what's interesting is Luke does not describe any of the events of Passover. He doesn't describe what the week was like. He doesn't describe what the celebration was like. He describes an incident that happens as they are leaving Passover. Passover is simply the event that took place for this event in Christ's life to take place. But I had you think in your, in your childhood, because of all the events that Luke decides to record, this is the one that he decides to record for us. So we can assume that he has a very specific a purpose for doing that we know he does and then ultimately we know that God has a very specific purpose for having this event recorded for us in scripture but all Luke records is the event he records that Christ was left behind Passover is simply uh, the reason why this event took place it didn't take place because of any sin of Mary or Joseph or anyone else uh, it just happened so Mary and Joseph and the company that they were with, they start home and they make it a day's journey before they realize that Christ is not with them. And you can imagine them beginning to frantically look around, asking people, have have you seen Jesus? Have you seen him? Where did you see him last? Asking maybe his brothers and sisters, well, why why didn't you check that he was here? And, and I'm sure Mary and Joseph were frustrated with each other eventually as well in our humanness too, right? Where we go and now... Now, well, this can't be my fault. This has got to be somebody else's fault. This has got to be Mary's fault, or this has got to be Joseph's fault. Uh, it would have been frantic. It would have been a very uncomfortable situation as they are searching for their child. And eventually, as they get to the bottom, it, uh, they, they likely came to the conclusion, well, we haven't seen him since Jerusalem. And we thought that was the back of his head 12 miles ago, but that wasn't, that wasn't him. We actually haven't seen him since Jerusalem. And then they get that sinking feeling in their stomach that they've left their child behind. It's like you and I retracing our steps for something that we've lost, except the problem is the thing that we've lost also is able to take steps, and therefore that person may not be where we left them, right? It's like a baby. I remember when, when Thomas was all of a sudden able to be mobile. You you appreciated when he was able to be uh, immobile, Right? And you put him down somewhere, and he stays there. But now we we lose him every now and again, and you're hoping that someone at the church here picks him up and is watching what he's doing. Uh, I don't see Finn this morning. He might be downstairs. But I, I do know if Finn is around, Thomas is usually about 12 feet behind him, um, just not quite able to catch up. But we... We, we, we have this problem where we've lost something that is also able to move, right? It's a human being. It's a child. It's a, in this case, it's a 12-year-old Jesus who we don't know where he is. So they search among the caravan. They realize that Christ must be back in the city and that, in fact, Christ had never even left with them. So then they know, well, as parents, we've got to head back. We've got to head back to Jerusalem. We have to get him. And that means it's another day's travel back. Now, they may have hurried on a little bit more, so maybe it didn't quite take them a day getting back. It may have taken a little less time, but you get the idea. We have time now that Mary and Joseph are now continuing to stir and to wonder what's going on as they're heading back and wonder what has happened to their son. Look in verse 46. After uh, after they realize, it says, verse 46, "...after three days they found him in the temple." Now, most think that those, that three days is a total. So you've got your day away, your day coming back, a day looking in the city, three days that Christ has now been without his parents. Regardless, that's a long time looking for your child, isn't it? 46, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus is found in the temple. He's found among the teachers, and that would have been common for students to sit among the teachers in the temple to learn, um, to sit in the midst of them as they taught, as they discussed. Students would sit, they'd listen to discussion of great minds, as you and I often do today. We listen to debates, or we listen to discussion. If you've been to a conference on anything Likely there is a session at some point of a roundtable discussion, or you have Q&As where someone presents a question and then the question is discussed and talked about, and you in the um, audience, so to speak, of that debate or discussion are simply learning from these great minds. It's not really that much different than when you watch a football game. If you go home this afternoon and watch a football game, you watch the first half, and what comes on before the second half? Half Halftime show. So you, you sit and you watch Boomer or some of these other guys on Fox or whatever the case may be, and they're talking about the first half. They're discussing the events that have happened in the first half of the football game, and they're also discussing what may or may not even take place in the second half, right? We have so many theories of something that may take place, and so these great minds, if we want to call them that, great minds of football anyways, are discussing something that we are interested in, and we are simply the audience that are watching, that are learning from that. I don't know how, how often I will, if, if I'm talking to, um, about sports with someone, I'll say, well, Bob McKenzie said this on TSN, right? It's, this isn't my authority. This is Bob McKenzie, okay? This is him who says this. So, if you want to disagree, just understand you are disagreeing with Bob McKenzie, and that is quite the thing to be doing, right? So, we, 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 we look at these people who are discussing, and we, we learn from them, and that's what Christ is doing here um, in the temple, And we even see the wisdom of Christ because we see Christ taking the opportunity in Jerusalem. Passover has just happened. There's many prominent teachers there. Christ is using his wisdom to take the opportunity to learn among these great teachers um, that he likely wouldn't have had the opportunity in the small town of Nazareth to be able to do. So as we said Judaism this is the typical method in Acts chapter 17 twice we're told that Paul reasons with someone this is the same idea you're reasoning you're discussing you're dialoguing this isn't this isn't someone preaching and everyone is listening in silence this is dialogue that's going on and yes you have an audience who are sort of paying attention to what is going on students gathering around a teacher asking questions to start that discussion. But what I see here when Christ is in the temple, this is the only time in Scripture that we see Christ as a student. The only time in Scripture we see Christ as a student. Every other time in Scripture Christ is the one teaching. Christ is the one asking questions to people in order to amaze them, right? Or giving answers to people that amaze them as a teacher. This time he's doing it as a student. Verse 47, we already read it, but it says all who heard him were amazed at his understanding, at his answers. Some of your Bibles might, stay, might say astonished, that they were astonished at his answers. They were astonished at the things that he was talking about. So Jesus' performance here is so impressive that Luke says all who heard him were amazed. And this is a 12-year-old boy. Now at a 12, as a 12-year-old boy, I was not one who was amazing people with my answers. I was not one who was... Astounding people with the great things that I knew I was probably off in the corner putting a Lego set together and that was about um, The amount of wisdom that I had right, but this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is God Himself who's doing this and this isn't the only place in Luke's gospel where Luke talks about Christ Amazing people in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. This is of course when Christ is uh, grown in his ministry uh, says all, Luke says all who spoke and all spoke well of him and marvelled at his gracious words and then later in Luke chapter four it says and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority remember when Christ calmed the storm in Luke chapter eight uh, that says the disciples the disciples were afraid and it says and they marvelled and said who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. When Christ casted a demon in Luke chapter 11, Luke records, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and all the people marveled. And then lastly, Luke chapter 20. This is speaking of the Pharisees, and I find this one interesting because Luke chapter 20, looking at the Pharisees, verse 26 says, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him. Remember, the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus in the things that he said so that they then they could condemn him. For the things that he said, right? Christ's claim to be deity, his claim to be God. But in Luke 20, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So these are the enemies of Christ. These are Pharisees in Luke chapter 20 who are trying to catch him, who are trying to uh, cause Christ harm. And they, it says, marveled at his answer. They were amazed. They were astonished. We have these, and we have many other instances, of course, not just in the book of Luke, but throughout uh, the Gospels of things that Christ said and things that Christ did that caused astonishment, that caused people to marvel, that caused amazement uh, by the things that he did. And look in 2.48, we see that, there, that other people are astonished. Luke, Luke 2.48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now, his parents may have sat down for a couple minutes and, and heard what he was saying, but I, I, don't, I don't know if that would re- really be the case. If you were a parent who has lost your child, your 12-year-old boy, for three days, and you see your child wherever he happens to be, you're probably running to him, right? As quick as you can uh, and making sure that he's okay. So I don't think Mary and Joseph sat there and listened to what Christ was saying in order to then be astonished. I think that Mary and Joseph are astonished because of where Christ is and what He's doing. They're amazed because Christ isn't—he doesn't really seem concerned with what's going on here, does He? He doesn't see—it doesn't seem like this is out of the ordinary for Him. I think they're astonished because they found—we finally found Him—but it's a little confusion because look, of, look at where He is at. Now, I don't want to bring up any traumatic experiences, but. Uh, there may have been some people here who have been left somewhere by your parents. That can be a traumatic experience, right? And you're, if your parents are here, they probably don't want you to raise your hand right now either. That's embarrassing for us as parents too, isn't it? Um, I don't remember a time being lost in the mall or being lost in the grocery store or anything like that. My brother, one of my brothers I remember got lost in a grocery store. And then the the, the poor embarrassment of the parent when the the loudspeaker comes on and says, can Mr. or Mrs. Ottaway come and pick up their child who they have left crying in this aisle? Whatever the case is, right? But if you're a child and you get separated from your parents, I want you to think about, or if you're a child right now, what you would do if you got separated from your parents or what your parents might expect you to do, Right? Maybe we haven't had this conversation with our children, but, but we hopefully think that our parents are, are likely going to look for someone, right? Look for someone, uh, not just a random person. You don't just grab a random stranger's hand and then, okay, we're good to go now, right? You go, if you're in a grocery store, you go to a cashier or you go to customer service and you say, I'm so-and-so and my parents are nowhere to be found. Or you probably want them to say it a little nicer than that. Um, but that's what we want our children to do, Right? We want our children to do that. Now, what we expect our children to do and what we want our children to do may not always line up um, because we probably expect our children maybe to be sitting in a corner, maybe to be crying, right, whatever the case is, however old that that child is. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we hopefully prep, prepare our children that, okay, once you if, if you ever get separated from me, then I want you to get all the courage you have and you go tell whatever it is, a police officer, a security guard, a cashier in the grocery store. Tell them who you are so we can be reunited because that's that's the ultimate goal, isn't it? So so that is what we want as parents. But Mary and Joseph, when they are looking for Christ, they are looking, and it may not have been Mary and Joseph that initially actually saw him. Uh, it may have been some others in the caravan that came back to help them look for Christ and and like, they say, okay, we'll split up. I'll look in this part of the city. You look in that part of the city. And eventually got word back, however, to Mary and Joseph and say, yep, we, he's here. He's in the temple. And we're given here when Mary and Joseph get to the temple. And when they see him, and I believe that they're astonished because Christ is doing something completely out of the ordinary for a 12-year-old boy to be doing. He's not worried. He's not crying. Uh, he's discussing things with the leaders in the synagogue 48, we already read the first part, but we'll, read, we'll go on to the second part. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, and you can almost, uh, you can almost hear the exhaustion in Mary's uh, words, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She's pretty much saying, what were you thinking? Where were you? Where have you been? We've been looking for you for days in this city. She says, do you have any idea how long we've been looking? And we can sometimes try and guilt our kids into that, can't we? Say, what were you thinking? In other words, we're really saying you're, you weren't thinking, right? That's our, that's our other tone. I think Mary would have been likely exhausted, relieved, and upset all at the same time as she finds her boy. And she shows that by her attempt to Uh, seemingly make Jesus feel guilty by saying what were you what were you thinking now Jesus didn't intentionally cause heartache and worry for his parents but he is showing the separation that would occur between him and his earthly family uh, as his life goes on Jesus answer to his mother uh, and look at these carefully because these are the only words that we have of Jesus as a child when he's growing up before his earthly ministry. Look um, into, we'll read 48 again. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And then 49, he said to them, Why were you looking for me? You can almost hear the innocence in Christ's voice, right? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now Jesus uses a little wordplay because look at Mary's question. Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I... Been looking for you. Then 49, Jesus says, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Of course, Mary is talking about Joseph, talking about Jesus' earthly father, and Jesus is talking about his heavenly father. But Jesus' answer is that he'd be at his father's house. And although it wouldn't happen for another 18 years when he reached the age of 30, Christ shows us this in his ministry this separation. John 6, 38, John records Christ saying, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But in some sense, as Jesus gives his answer, he's giving his purpose for coming, isn't he? He's giving giving his purpose for coming as a baby, for coming as a man, to live among people. And he almost says it in the sense like, what would you expect me to be doing? What else would I be doing? rather than be in my father's house. Jesus doesn't answer Mary and say, you know, I just, I really wanted to be in my father's house. I just really wanted to be there. He doesn't say, I knew it would be good for me to be in my father's house, although both of those are very good answers, right? But instead he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Some of your translations might say, did you know that I had to be in my father's house? And that word house can be translated as temple. But it can also carry the meaning of my Father's business. My Father's bidding, you might say. So Jesus is saying, didn't you know that I must be about my Father's business? I must be about my Father's will. In other words, Christ had submitted to the will of the Father, not just in the plan of his crucifixion, uh, his burial, his resurrection, not just in his ministry life that we often look at, but he had submitted to the will of the Father in everything, even here, twenty twenty years or so before his earthly ministry began, as a twelve-year-old boy. He's, he wasn't just out doing his own thing before before he's baptized, before his ministry. Christ is not just out doing his own thing until we start to hear about the miracles. We hear about the triumphal entry and the things that we celebrate at Easter, but even in all the unknown events of his childhood. Christ was in full submission to the Father and all the while claiming to be one with God. Some branches of Christianity claim that Jesus became God. That yes, Jesus is God now, but Jesus wasn't always God. They will claim that 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 Jesus came as um, as a boy, as a baby. And then eventually, as time goes on, sometime before the age of 30, he grew um, in the character to eventually become God. Now, there's a lot of problems with that theology, and there is no theological backup for that or scriptural uh, support for that. And actually, that destroys the belief of Christianity which is based on the fact that Christ is fully God and fully man all at the same time uh, as being the only way that he can then provide salvation. As if Christ if Christ was born as man but not God, then he's imperfect like you and I are, right? Therefore, he cannot be a sufficient uh, sacrifice for sin. We often look at other times in Jesus' run-ins with the Pharisees, and Jesus had quite a few of those, obviously, we know of. Um, but run-ins where Jesus would claim to be God. He would claim to be deity. And that's really what the Pharisees eventually used to um, to condemn Jesus, to to persecute him. But then it, ultimately to, to crucify him was the idea that this man is blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. And that's what the Pharisees used against him. That happened on many occasions in Jesus' adult life. But Jesus is making the exact same statement here when he's 12 years old. Uh, claiming to be God. It's a profound statement about who He is and why actually the entire theology of Christianity, of what we believe, is able to exist. Christ is not claiming that God is His Father in the same sense that God is our Father. God's our Father. God created us. Uh, we are, if, we, if we know Him, we are followers of Christ. He is our Father. But Christ is not claiming that same same sense of the word as as God is our father as his. He's also not claiming that God is his father in a national sense. as the sense that Israel would. The nation of Israel would look at God as their father. That's not what Christ is talking about. But Christ is claiming that God is his personal and intimate father. And in essence that they are one. So he's clearly telling his parents that he's under the authority of the father being God the Father, and he's not ultimately the son of Mary or the son of Joseph. He's claiming to be the son of God, as he does many other places later in his ministry, uh, which, as we said, is the reason why uh, the Jewish leaders were were angry with him most of the time. He's claiming to be deity. He's claiming to be God himself, and um, I don't want us to miss that with a 12-year-old Jesus that is also claiming that deity it's not out of the ordinary for the term son to be used to describe someone's nature, something that they identify with, which of course is what Christ is doing, and not not use the term son as being where someone came from, origin. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls unbelievers the sons of disobedience. He's not saying that these unbelievers were born from disobedience, right? In a sense, they are born from people of disobedience, right? But when when Paul says that they are unbelievers are sons of disobedience he's identifying them with that right he's identifying them as people uh, he's identifying them with disobedience and that's what Christ is doing he calls himself the son of god he's identifying himself with the very nature of god when he does that and we'll finish with this if you look in in chapter 2 look at verse 50 because this is their response they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So when Jesus gave them the answer that I must be in my Father's house, it says they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now that may be Mary. It certainly would include Mary and Joseph. That may be others as well, uh, but we know for sure that that includes Mary and Joseph. They didn't understand. And then 51 says he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And that's important that Luke added that in there. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And then 52, as we saw already, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now Mary and Joseph understood a lot of things about Christ. They were told a lot of things about Christ as he was coming. Uh, They understood that Christ was the son of David. They understood that he was the Messiah. They understood that he was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Often we hear on this time the song Mary, did you know? Yes, Mary did know um, that all these things would take place. She may not have known the the exact fashion that, we, that they should took place, that they should take place, but she knew, Mary and Joseph knew that Christ was the Messiah. But it's clear from verse 50 the entirety of the sonship of Christ to the Father wasn't fully understood. At least not right now as we know that this isn't the only time that we see this phrase in Scripture. So this is what we have of the childhood of Christ. This is what we have. And Luke doesn't record a miracle. He doesn't record anything really supernatural when you think about it, something that has happened. It's a plain situation, and likely Christ is not the first child to be left in Jerusalem after Passover. By sheer odds, that likely happened other times as well. But it's the response of Jesus that Luke wants us to see. A simple event in the childhood of Christ that shows us his entire devotion to the Father and the Father's will. But it also gives us a truer understanding of the gospel. We know that the gospel tells us that we're born sinners. We know that the gospel tells us we are born in need of a Savior. But we need more than that. We need more than just something or someone to take the punishment for our sin. That's not enough. The question is sometimes raised as to why Christ had to live the years that he did in order to be the Savior to mankind. Christ lived 33 years. So the question is raised, well, why did Jesus have to live that long? Why couldn't Jesus be announced to Mary, be born to Mary, be fully God, fully man? Yes, he would have been fully God, fully man. Live a day, die, and then rise again and then ascend to God the Father, right? Why did he have to live this 33-year life for us? Because that's very important. It's important that he lived that long. In salvation, not only do we need Christ to pay the penalty for our sin, but what else do we need? We need righteousness. We need Christ's righteousness. Paul expresses this perfectly in Second Corinthians. He writes about both aspects of the substitutionary atonement, and the substitutionary atonement is just are just big words for Christ being the substitute in order to gain us reconciliation with God, right to atone, to pay the penalty for for our sin. But there's two points to that, and in second Corinthians five, Paul says, "For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's taking the punishment for our sin, right obviously crucial to our salvation, but then Paul says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need God's righteousness for salvation. If you and I are forgiven of our sin and that's it, we're in trouble because now we're neutral. We do not have the righteousness of God, but salvation, the gospel preaches that you and I, uh, we have sinned, therefore needs to be paid for by Christ who did that, but not only that, we put our sin on Christ, impute it, we impute, we place that sin, or at least God places the punishment of that sin on Christ, and then he imputes that righteousness of Christ onto you and I. And that righteousness is keeping the law perfectly as Christ did. And that's why I said it's important when Luke said that Christ was submissive to his parents, showing Christ's obedience constantly throughout his entire life. And that's the righteousness that you and I are then able to stand before God because of. It's very important uh, to remember those, those couple of things for our salvation. So as we close, this ought to give us an unbelievable uh, sense of the grace of God to us, shouldn't it? Christ would endure life on this earth. He'd live a righteous life in order to accomplish salvation for his people. But when I look at a passage of Scripture, I want to just not, I, I, facts are great, and I want to know facts. I want to know the truths of His Word, but I want to be able to put it into practice today. I want to be able to do something with it this afternoon. is so important. And that's not going to be exactly the same for me as it's going to be for you. Our application of Scripture is going to depend on the circumstances that God has put us in. But it doesn't just give us comfort and peace in our own salvation. It calls us to an unbelieving world. It calls me to an unbelieving world because of the grace that God has shown me. Because of the grace that God has shown you, it calls me to share the gospel with them. And many of those people that, that need the gospel, you and I have just seen over family dinners. We've just seen over get-togethers, right? Family amongst our own family who do not know Christ. That serves to humble us, serves us to show us that we are not here because uh, I am somehow smarter than the the person down the road or the person next door. I'm simply here because of the grace uh, and mercy of God. God has given us his grace and his mercy when we were dead in our sin and trespasses. He made us alive again through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word Thank you for Luke, Father. Thank you for um, his recording of this event in Christ's life. Lord, I pray that we would learn from it, that we wouldn't just sit and we wouldn't just take in head knowledge, but that you would use it to shape us and grow us as we go about our week, as we go about really our year and our life. Um, Lord, we pray that you'd use us. We pray that you would uh, keep us humble. Thank you for the gospel. We thank you for salvation. Thank you for Christ and for the life that he lived. And I pray that we as a people, would be dedicated to desiring to honor you as Christ honored you, as Christ honored his Father. Thank you for how you'll use us, Father. Help us to be willing. Help us to be ready. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.